Welcome to CBC this morning. That wasn't too awkward, was it? Good. Uh, hopefully it's a snow day in Texas today. So if you're watching at home in the warmth of your home, ready to make snowmen, it's probably not going to happen. Sorry. But we hope it does not to burst any bubbles. This morning, as we talk about solitude, we're going to start by just remembering why we're here. There's so much vying for our attention. That's where we're going to focus today. There's so much that tries to divide our attention on where we're at in the moment. And so today we come here with a purpose, and it's to know God and to see how God is working in our life and in our world, and it's to find out what God is telling us. And that takes some work on our ends, especially in a culture that's surrounded by stuff all the time. So we're going to take a minute at the beginning, we're going to pray like we do every single week. We live in a very critical culture. It's our first response to experience, and sometimes we need to set that aside and ask, what is God doing in this moment to be contributors to the conversation of faith, to the conversation the Holy Spirit is having with us, and not critics of it? So we're just going to pray that the Holy Spirit does a work this morning, that he allows us to concentrate and focus on what's truly better. So I'll ask that you pray for you, and then I'll ask that you pray for me, that God might use preparation to teach us more about himself. So join me. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful to be here. I'm thankful to enter into this place in this time where we can focus on the better, where we can read the scriptures, where we can see Jesus and the rhythms of how he lived. Holy Spirit, as we open the scripture this morning and ask some questions about our culture and our practices, I pray that you reveal where we need to implement changes in our life so that we might look more like Jesus. I pray that you might gracefully speak to us through the scriptures and through others around us. And I pray that today we might see more of how good you are and how good your plan is for us as people following Jesus. So if you're comfortable, take 10 or 15 seconds and just say a, a silent prayer and ask that the Holy Spirit uh, teach your spirit this morning. And ask that you pray for me. That God might use the preparation and the words and the Holy Spirit all mixed together to help us see more of the beauty of Jesus this morning. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen, everybody. So we, we start January, and we start our January's talking about spiritual practices. And today we're going to talk a little bit about solitude. And, and I know it seems a little weird, but there, you go through life stages where solitude seems like it's easier to grasp or harder. I remember probably four or five years ago, before I had kids, I led a group here that was called the Young Families, because that made sense. And I remember finding this meme of literally this little kid's hand underneath the bathroom door waiting for their mother or father. And I thought to myself, that can't be real. I have a two and a half year old. Let me tell you how this works now. We have, we have reached a place in my world where now I'm afraid to go anywhere. My daughter is big enough to turn handles and knobs and open doors for herself. And, and we also live in a world where I share a bathroom with my two-year-old daughter. That's a personal issue I'll get to later with my wife. But we share this bathroom, and the bathroom door doesn't lock. The lock broke. I'm not Bob Vila. It's still broke, okay? So my daughter has learned now how to open doors, and we are trying to teach her now, especially when it comes to the bathroom door, if that door is closed, please, 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 please knock before you come charging in, right? It's terrifying. 
to take a place that used to be pretty private and now make it not private anymore in a very tangible and real way. I feel surrounded all the time by people because in my life stage, when you have small kids, there's usually no safe places to go without them feeling like they need to invade it. I feel surrounded. Solitude is hard to grasp. But not just my life stage, because you might be saying, I don't have toddlers, I'm an empty nester, I do all these things alone all the time. I think culturally we're shifting away from a practice of solitude into a practice of distraction. Microsoft did a study a couple years ago, I think 2017, and they, they asked how quickly people, when they're waiting for something, turn to their phones. 77% of responders between mostly the ages 18 and, and 30-ish said it takes me less than eight seconds when I have time to stop, sit, and wait to be alone to pull out my phone. The same study said that our attention spans have dropped from 12 seconds to 8 seconds. And you might be saying, Charlie, what does it have to do with solitude? I think we live in a culture where solitude is increasingly more difficult to find. And I know that because we live in a market economy that tries to fix problems by selling you stuff. And now, I don't know if you've seen this before, but in 2019, one of Time's inventions of the year was something called the light phone. Have you heard of the light phone? The light phone is a phone that you can buy for $350 that all it does, all it does is send and receive phone calls and you can use T9 texting. That's it. There's no internet, there's no Facebook, there's no apps, there's no saved numbers. That's all it does is call in and out and T9 text. And if you're a child of the 90s like me and you remember what T9 was, it was a punishment. It was a curse, not a blessing, you know? My point is simply now, we've decided that it's gone so far and we're so connected all the time and we're so always surrounded and never alone that we're literally selling products that were made in the 90s like they're new again. I'm bringing back pleated plants and I'm going to make a fortune, you know, or fanny packs. It's this idea that we live in a place that is farther and farther from solitude. One of my favorite writers, T.S. Eliot, has a phrase that I love in one of his poems. He said that literally we are distracted from distraction by distraction. There was an author that wrote a book called um, I Used to Be Human, and in it he talks about the church and he goes on and on, but essentially he says, what if the greatest threat to followers of Jesus today wasn't necessarily hedonism, but distraction? How has all the distraction changed how we follow Jesus as a people? Because you might say, I don't have this life stage or I'm fine getting away, but even when we're more isolated in the last nine or 10 or 11 months, I'm willing to bet that you're more readily available. I'm betting work can find you anywhere. I'm betting your kids can find you anywhere, whether or not they open doors or not, they can text you and call you. I live in a world now where we got one kid and one on the way, and we're thinking, do we need to have access to our kid's room on a video screen all the time, or is it okay just to walk away from that? There's a movement of young parents now saying, you know, we're not going to use monitors anymore because we need some separation, we need some solitude, we need some distance. How has the distractions, good or bad, shaped how we follow Jesus? Because here's what I know. It's a thread of the scriptures. Dozens of times this one phrase came up that Jesus withdrew to be alone and to pray. It was a rhythm of what he did. And so we talk about it as a spiritual practice, meaning what we want to do is find how Jesus lived, and so we want to emulate that. 
not just because. Jesus is more than just the offering of eternal life. Jesus is more than just the offering of heaven if we say a prayer. Jesus is the offering of a more beautiful and better life. Jesus is the offering of rest in a chaotic world. Jesus is the offering of the flourishing of humanity and what it could be. And so we look at how we lived and we say, how can we do that more? And time and time again, Jesus got away. That's why the church fathers, when they talk about solitude, there's a phrase they use all the time. They said, solitude is the furnace of transformation. And so it's a practice as followers of Jesus that we look at. And when we talk about spiritual practices, let's define some terms before we go on. When we talk about spiritual practices, we're not heavy-handed in this. This isn't something you have to do. This is an invitation and things to do because we want to look more like Jesus together. We're not saying you have to do X, Y, and Z or one, two, three. We're simply saying we see Jesus living in this way. We think it can help us live more like Jesus. Join us if you want to. It's an invitation leading with grace that says join us in looking more like Jesus because it helps us do that. One of my favorite definitions of spiritual practices or disciplines comes from Dallas Willard. He defines it like this. He said that Dallas Willard said that spiritual um, disciplines is an activity I can do by direct effort that will eventually enable me to do that which currently I cannot do by direct effort. So if I came up to you and said, do 10 pull-ups for me, you said, Charlie, there's no way I can do that right now. We'd say, well, how can I start a program or a process where you can do 17 push-ups a day and then maybe next week 18 push-ups a day and over time that practice will get you to the end result you want. That's spiritual disciplines. I want to look just like Jesus. I don't right now. Shocking. I want to look more like Jesus and solitude, and we're going to get a silence next week. Solitude is a thing that will help me get there. At CBC, when we do this every year, we use this definition. Spiritual disciplines or practices are the way that we participate in the work that only God can accomplish, the work of changing our hearts. And so, Jesus has this practice of withdrawing to lonely places and praying. And today we want to talk about what that might look like. And what we're going to do is kind of at first talk about this one verse and then go to a couple different stories in Matthew 14 because he did it dozens of times. And we're going to look at a couple and say, well, why did he do these things? But we have to start, first of all, by talking about the intentionality of Jesus to withdraw and pray. So it says in Luke 5, the one we've been quoting, that Jesus withdrew often to the lonely places and prayed. And the first thing we have to recognize that we've kind of hit on is that it doesn't come as easily anymore for us to be in solitude. You know, 50 years ago, solitude didn't take effort. It took effort to not find it. Now it takes effort to find solitude. And we've seen that. That same study I quoted about, you know, people between 18 and 30 that pick up their phones in eight seconds. You know who didn't? People over 65 in that study didn't. They just sat there with themselves and said, we're going to wait. Because our times have changed. Solitude is not nearly as easy as a practice as it used to be. And so what that means for us is that it takes more intentionality to practice the same disciplines that maybe came easier early on. And and it makes sense. So when it says that Jesus withdrew, he is making the decision, and this is what we have to understand, is solitude is a practice that takes intentionality. It will not come intrinsically anymore to our culture. He withdrew. And when you think about it, isn't that what makes healthy relationships, time spent with, with your wife and date nights? I heard uh, someone say recently to me that, you know, the way that you spell, or the way that you spell, yeah, love to a child is T-I-M-E, you know? I was like, oh, that's good. (laughs) 
So this idea that Jesus withdrew, it came intentionally because he intentionally wanted to develop his relationship with God. And that just makes sense. That's how you develop all relationships ever is over time. And so he withdrew over time to find time to be with God. But, but here's what we need to speak to real quick. So it's not just I'm alone all the time. It's a purposeful being alone. And so when Jesus withdrew all the time, he withdrew too. It says pray most of the time when he withdrew. So it wasn't just I'm alone in my house and I'm watching Netflix all night long. Solitude is awesome, right? It's not just the introverts in the room saying, I love solitude. I got this practice down. No, solitude is not simply being alone. Solitude is being alone for a purpose and something upfront we need to deal with. There's a difference between solitude and isolation. There's a difference between solitude and loneliness. That's a key differentiator to make because right now in our culture, we have seen the rise of loneliness and not in a good way. Certain surveys and reports say that loneliness has increased 50 to 60% since March because people are more alone. Solitude is not isolation. They're very different. Richard Foster says loneliness is inner emptiness. Solitude is inner fulfillment. There's a difference. Solitude oftentimes is healthy and life-giving. It's engaging. Isolation is an escape from that which usually tries to grow us. Solitude is safety. Isolation is seen as danger. Solitude is how you open yourself up from God. Oftentimes, isolation is how you run from God. Isolation is, is, is curated in this culture of shame. It's what we see in Genesis 3, right? What happened? Adam sinned, and the first thing he did when he sinned, his shame drove him to run from, be isolated from, be distant from God. There is unhealthy isolation. Solitude is not an unhealthy isolation. It is a healthy pursuit so that we might grow closer with God and look more like Jesus. There's a difference between solitude and isolation. And it's hard because sometimes culturally, we think of loneliness as a bad thing. I'm an extrovert. I am a high, high, high extrovert. Back when we were dating, me and my wife, she would have like one thing a week. I would have seven things a night and be telling everybody I'm running 30 minutes late. I'm a high extrovert. And one thing we have to, I always thought was that, you know, isolation or loneliness is usually because you did something wrong or we have a cultural narrative. Sometimes it says that isolation is a problem and, and it's not, that solitude is a problem and, and it's not. For a while, I lived in Chicago and I worked for the Chicago Marathon. Man, these people were crazy, okay? There was a meme that I saw uh, a while back and it basically said, why I run in the mornings is because I want to know that the worst part of my day is behind me. <laughs> I was like, yes! So I'm, I'm, I'm sitting in the office of the marathon and it's like 15, 16 full-time people. And this is the biggest marathon, by the way, in the world. It's like 45,000 people. And all these people run for fun. And they were, my boss at the time was a tech director and he would do like 10 and 12 miles during his lunch break of an hour, an hour and a half. He came back one day, he said, Charlie, do you run? And I said, oh, oh, good Lord, no, I like myself. And, and he said, really? And I said, yeah, it's terrible. And he said, let me ask you a question. I'd never put this together before. He said, let me ask you a question. Uh, did you play sports? I said, all of them. He said, in high school? I said, yeah. I said, basketball and baseball and football. I'm athletic. I'm going to keep saying sports names. I, I played all the sports. And he said, what was your punishment if you did something wrong? I said, running. I said, oh, there it is, <laughs> you know? So running to me was never a source of enjoyment because it was always a form of punishment. So let's talk about loneliness, isolation, and solitude. Sometimes we don't seek it out because what do we do when kids mess up? Go to timeout. What do we do when you've done something wrong? We run. 
So often in our culture, isolation and loneliness is steeped in a shame culture and not in one that causes us to grow closer with Christ. But it seems like Jesus said you have to see solitude for the beauty that it is, and oftentimes we miss it. Because at CBC, we say you can't do life alone, and we want you to be in a group, but healthy people are in groups and are alone at the same time. And so Jesus went to places, and he withdrew. So we're going to look at two stories in Matthew, and then we're going to look at the beginning of Jesus' life and the end of Jesus' life. And here's what I want to know why. What did it do for him? What was the value of solitude in the life of Christ? Why did he do it? And so the first story is in Matthew 14. You can go there if you want to. We'll pick it up in right around verse 13. It's talking about John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist, it says, I'll just kind of paraphrase a bit in verse 11. He said that John the Baptist was killed and his head was brought on a platter and given to a girl and she brought it to her mother. Then John's disciples came back, took the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. You gotta understand the relationship between Jesus and John the Baptist. One, they were family. Two, even from the beginning of the gospel stories, when, when Mary literally walked in the room, when John the Baptist was in the womb, like he leapt in his mom's belly, if you remember that story. John the Baptist was the person picked by God to go before Jesus to say, get ready, something great is about to happen. When Jesus was asked about John the Baptist, he literally said, there is no one better that has ever gone before. Jesus loved John the Baptist, picked John the Baptist, used John the Baptist, John the Baptist died. So you have to understand here that this wasn't a, oh, somebody died. This is my family in a, in a collective culture. This is my front runner that I've chosen to go before me. This is somebody near and dear to my heart. And what happens right after Jesus found out that John the Baptist dies, the next verse? Jesus heard this. He went away from there privately in a boat to an isolated place and prayed. So I think there's several we could go to. We're just going to one this morning for time's sake. But I think one of the things we realize, and we see it in the life of Jesus, is that oftentimes when faced with experiences that were good and hard and everything in between, oftentimes when faced with those experiences in life that we don't know how to understand or interpret or don't like, you know what Jesus did? He experienced life, the goods and bads, and then he went away and processed it with God. I think one thing that happens when we get alone, it is allows us to gain some perspective on our experiences because we are a people that oftentimes are defined by or try to be defined by our experiences. So for example, I, I'm a huge fan of any kind of those bud, BuzzFeed quizzes that let me place what kind of millennial I am. I'm a millennial. And that word sometimes has been used in really bad ways for our people over the last, you know, but you got to realize is millennials te technically defined as anybody born from 1981 to, I think, all the way to 2000. And there is a remarkable difference between me born in 1983 and somebody born in 1999. So there's an article a few years back, and it talked about the difference between young and old millennials, and it used experiences to define it. It said, you, like me, are an old millennial if three things happened. One, if you can remember where you were when 9-11 happened. Because I remember as a youth pastor, and I said 9-11, and these kids looked at me, and I said, what? And they said, that, I don't remember where I was. I said, how is that possible? They said, I learned about it in a history book. I said, we can't talk anymore, you know? Two, they said, if you can remember a time when you weren't always connected to the internet, the whole, like, go outside and play and be back at dark, what your parents used to say when they were sick of you, now they call CPS. And then three uh, is if you graduated college before the Great Recession of 2007. If you did those three things and you were probably an older millennial and certain traits went with that, it defined who you were, it defined how you dealt with the world around you, how you dealt with relationships, how you dealt with work ethic, like all the things. We are a people that oftentimes try to define one another by our experiences. I'm sure you've been there. 
you are what you you are the best of what you've done and you are also the worst of what you've done at the same time fighting those things that I am not defined by the worst decision I've made nor am I as good as the best decision I've made because isn't the gospel all about saying that we aren't defined by our experience but by Christ's work isn't the gospel all about saying even on my best days I need Jesus and even on my worst days he still loves me isn't that the heart of the gospel is in a culture that tries to define us by our experiences, what we see with Jesus is that as he got away, he went with God to be alone with God so that he might have perspective to, exp- to interpret his experiences. Matthew 14, my family died. I need some time to be alone with God. I need some time to pray. And then the next story in that chapter, it says that he comes back and people try to follow Jesus in uh, this portion of his life. Because he was doing some pretty cool stuff. He was healing people and casting out demons and he was teaching in radical ways that drew people in and also divided people at the same time. He was speaking against the kingdom of oppression by saying oppression isn't your best good, compassion is your best good. He was saying that power isn't the ultimate, meekness is the ultimate, which is a use of your power for the good of others. He's teaching these radical ideas in the Roman world so people followed him. And it says in Matthew 14 that they tried to follow him and he got away. And when he came back, the people were waiting. And then we get into this really well-known passage in the middle of Matthew 14. If I asked you, hey, give me Jesus' top three miracles outside of the whole rose from the dead thing, which should be number one all the time, all right? If I asked you, I'm willing to bet that you're going to say water into wine, and if we do, we have another conversation later on. Uh, Two, you might say something like, well, he rose Lazarus from the dead, but one of the most popular miracles that's in all the Gospels is the feeding of the 5,000. That's this one. So he gets back on the land, and there's all these people, literally thousands of people waiting for him, and he starts teaching, and he teaches all day long. And you know what people do all day long when they sit and listen to a teacher? You know, you go to Crossroads. We get hungry, right? And so he got hungry, and you know the story probably, there's this little boy with a lunch, a couple loaves of fish and some bread, and he goes up to Jesus and he gives it to him. And it says in our text that there's literally 5,000 men, women, and children. I'll read some of it. And he said, They ate and were satisfied. They picked up the broken pieces left over, 12 baskets, not halfway full, full, the abundance of God. Not counting women and children, there were 5,000 men who ate. So we're in somewhere in the range of 10 to 15,000 people Jesus feeds with almost nothing. Huge miracle, we celebrate it. But what does he do right after that? Right after he has this high watershed moment, he says, he sent the crowds away. He went up to the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. At this point in Jesus' life, you had this large swell of people that saw the beauty and goodness of Jesus, that saw the works that Jesus could do, that saw his unadulterated power, and it's going to build from here on out to when he goes to the cross, and they want to make him king. There are several times in the Gospels when they say, come and be king, and he leaves them. So what Jesus had to do over and over and over again while doing something this great is he had to really not just get away for perspective on experience, but he had to get away from people's expectations of him because they were weighing down on him. And when you think about it, that's most of why the people of God missed the purpose of God in the first century. That's why they missed the message of Jesus because they couldn't see through their own expectations of who they wanted him to be. That's Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, when Jesus rides in, and he, everybody thinks that he's going to take back Jerusalem for his people, build Israel again, just like David, conquer the Roman Empire, and so they're shouting, Hosanna, God save us, God save us. They're cheering him on, and yet four people were there when he died on the cross. It's crazy how quickly people will leave you when you don't fulfill their expectations of you. 
So in these moments, these high water, these low moments where he has these experiences and he's time to process, but right after that, in these high watershed moments when he delivers his people or does the miraculous for his people and they want to put him on a pedestal and say, lead us, he leaves because I think he's distancing from the expectation that people have for him. See, see what solitude does, the furnace of transformation. What solitude does is it not only helps give us perspective in the experiences of life, but also it really helps us not live into the expectations of others, but the expectations of God. And without that, we start to buy into the hype of us, that you are the best decision you've made or you're the worst thing you've ever done. And Jesus constantly, when he's battling both of these things, says, I I will not be defined by my experiences, and I won't let that define how I see myself, and also I will not let others' expectations of me be how I see me. I will let God define that. So in those moments, he gets away and he says, I need to reset my perspective around what God is, around who God is, and what he's called me to be. So lastly, I want to talk about kind of what happens in the middle of these moments of solitude. So he gets away. He runs from experiences and he runs from people's expectations. But finally, what you see is, is why Jesus gets away. And so we're going to look at two times that he draws away at the very beginning of his ministry and the very end of it. So the first thing that kind of kicked off his ministry is he was baptized. You probably know the story. It's in the Gospels. But, but essentially, he, he's being baptized by John the Baptist, and this really beautiful moment happens when the skies open up, the scripture says. And a dove descends, which embodies the Holy Spirit, and then God says, he said, audibly, this is my son, and whom I'm well pleased. That moment where the Trinity is in one place, visible to humankind for the first time since probably creation, this huge watershed moment when God is commissioning his son, he's commissioning his son to go and start your ministry, redeem the lost, tell people about me, start your journey towards the cross, because the culmination of Jesus' life was always the cross, no matter what other people wanted from him. He says, this is how we're going to begin this moment. What happens right after that watershed moment when he's baptized. It says, Jesus then went after that. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. That word wilderness is the word lonely place, the same place he's been going throughout the, the Gospels. And what we begin to see <clears throat> is that in these moments of loneliness, in these moments of solitude, that's where God starts to form us, equip us and prepare us for what's to come. So God calls Jesus to this ministry at the culmination of it, I mean, at, the, at the beginning of it, at the start of it. And he says, I'm gonna call you to this thing and now go and let's get ready together. And he takes him to this wilderness place and he says, let's prepare for the next three years of life. And when you look at that word lonely place or wilderness, throughout the scriptures, God has used those moments, places, times of solitude to prepare his people. You know, we talk about it often, but we read the Bible sometimes like it's a Marvel comic book. You turn the page and action, 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 Tony Stark, right? All these things happen, but, but really, the Bible is way slower than we think it is. It happens over thousands of years in multiple generations. So we read the story of Moses, and we think, oh, Moses fled to the desert, and then God called him, and then he went and delivered his people. There was 40 years of nothingness in between there. Not nothingness, just stillness. He was alone in the wilderness with his new family. Talk about David. David got commissioned to be king, and 10 years later, he actually took the throne. Same thing happened to Saul Paul. 
he fell off this horse going to Damascus, and there's this bright light, and then he took years to build tents and be prepared by God to do the work of God. What we see in these moments, oftentimes, we see massive preparation that's only happening in the furnace of solitude that transforms. The Dallas Mavericks started again this year. I'm a huge sports fan, and if you follow, fantastic. If you don't, we have this player called Luka Doncic, and he is amazing guys i'm so excited for our future but that's something else and, and all the reports were that he came to training camp this year a little pudgy um and, and look he probably has like at least four or five abs you can see so i'm in no way to talk about pudginess but i will say this i was listening to some stories about different preparations for athletes and what's crazy is you, you see the watershed moments but we oftentimes miss the preparation that happens in the moments of solitude one of the best players of all time is a guy named kobe bryant and they told the story about how when he was in the middle of his championship runs, he took his family in the offseason after he won a championship to Disney World. And he would get up at 4.30 or 5 in the morning to get a three-hour workout in before he hung out with his family all day at Disney World because he knew that preparation is key for God being able to or him being able to win championships. This idea that oftentimes we miss the value of solitude because we don't understand the value of preparation because we read the Bible in ways that miss it. We miss the quiet moments that miss the solitude. So the first thing Jesus does when he's called into his ministry is he finds a place that he gets away and God prepares. And then you know, the last thing he does is the culmination of his ministry, Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to the cross. It's after his final supper with his disciples. And he tells them, I'm leaving and going somewhere. And he takes them to this garden that he went to often and prayed. And he said, you guys stay over here. I'm gonna go and be alone. And I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna be with my father in solitude and I'm gonna pray. And this moment is gut-wrenching. If you read the scriptures, he knew what was going to happen. He knew he was going to die. He knew he was going to be beaten before he died. He knew what was going to happen so much so that if you read the scriptures, while he's praying, he is so wrought with, anxiety is the wrong word, but he's so wrought with kind of looking forward to what's next that he starts literally sweating blood. And what's he doing in that moment? He is finding his identity. He's finding his purpose in God not in his experiences of what's going to happen next or not in the expectations of others that he's about to let them down that they could see. And so what solitude does, what solitude does is it surrounds us and it forms us when everything else in the world tries to surround us and form us. What solitude does, it's where we let God do the work of forming so that we aren't formed by our experiences or others' expectations of us. What solitude does is it reminds us of who we are in a world that always tries to tell you who you are because you are surrounded by kids and by bosses and by traffic and by news and by news and by news and by news, right? What solitude does is it reminds us that we're formed by God, not the things around us. And it's needed. I have a friend of mine who was a youth pastor for a long time. And he said, one of the questions I get more than anything else is, hey, can, can you tell me like what my kids really like? I want to know what my kids really like. I want to know what they're like away from the house. I'm begging and pleading. They're nicer, more kind people. Can you tell me who they are? And he would look at every parent and he would say, look at who your friends hang out with. And I'll tell you who they are every time. Don't look at their friends and say, well, they're the outlier. They're not like that. Yes, they are. The truest indicator of who you are is what you surround yourself with, period, whether you're nine or 90. So my question is, if that's the case, how do we intentionally find times to surround ourselves just with God? Jesus did it. <laughs> if he needed to, I'm willing to bet we might too. 
this practice of solitude, this furnace of transformation. John Ortberg said solitude is the one place where we can gain freedom from the forces of society that will otherwise relentlessly mold us. So here's the why. When we're formed by God in the private places, we aren't shaped by the world in the public places. That's solitude. That's why it's needed because you are surrounded and being shaped and God says, I need to be in that process, not your experiences or the expectations of others, but in those silent solitude places, I am shaping you and forming you so that you can equip and handle the public places. Jesus often withdrew and prayed. And it's hard in our culture. It's hard because you're telling me I don't have time. It's hard because you're telling me things are too loud. It's hard because you're telling me my phone is always in my back pocket. My sister used to fly a whole lot and she was flying in um, somewhere in the Middle East. She's going through security and she has these cargo pants on with all of these pockets and she's talking to this man and she said, I'm so sorry, I have all these pockets and he looked at her and said, yeah, but you decided to fill them, you know? It's the idea that we surround ourselves with things all of the time. We surround ourselves, shapes who we are and so what do we do with the time we have? How do we then practice a rhythm of solitude in a busy surrounding culture? That's a tough question. I love, there's a Puritan idea called improving the time and basically what they said is you take every time you have and you just use it so a really applicable way is we all have a minute here or there in our day maybe we're sitting in a stoplight or maybe we're waiting in line don't pick up your phone maybe we're driving turn the radio off and just sit and be still maybe we park the farthest away we can at Costco which is like two and a half miles and we just walk (laughs) in silence How do we practice solitude in our current time, in our current place? I think one thing is we have to find small ways to do it. Whether it's walking or whether it's necessarily finding a minute or two when we're driving, whether it's when we're at a red light, I'm not angry because the light's red, this is personal, I'm saying, I'm saying, God, this is a moment you've allowed me to have a moment of solitude with you, thank you. It's changing our perspective on the rhythms of the everyday. So what small ways can we transform from something into something better, from frustration into moments of solitude? And then two, I think you have to find value in it. So ultimately it comes down to a question of how much do you want it? Like <laughs> That's just what it is. How much do you think solitude adds value to you looking more like Jesus? That's just what we have to talk about a little bit. And that, that's difficult. Because here's one thing I wanna, I wanna make really apparent is we call people into this practice with grace. It's not a matter of winning or losing. It's a matter of effort and we try and we fail sometimes and we try. So when we talk about spiritual practices, we, we don't start with where we wanna end. We start with where we are and we give grace on the process, you know? And so it might be simply by saying, I need to wake up before my kids. My resolution this year, one of them, is I need to beat my kid up in the morning. I need to. We're 10 days in, I'm losing every day, but I will (laughs) at some point. I need to beat my kid up because in those moments, I get solitude and silence. My wife's still asleep, my kid's still asleep. But if she runs into my room like she does every morning, opens the door, and she only slams, there's no grace or delicacy to how she opens doors and yells, I want a pancake sandwich. My world is already on the back burner of life, you know? A buddy of mine who has a rhythm he instituted in his family, He's got a couple small kids, and he says, you know, every day I try to beat my kids up, and then he said, I just have a small practice for me. He says, scripture before screens. And so every day in a world that's surrounded by media and outlets and Twitter and everything you want there, he says, I always find time for the scriptures before I find time for any screen in my life. And I love that. That's really good. 
He said, sometimes it's noon. <laughs> but he said, I, I try the best I can to value time with God to get away. Susanna Wesley, which is Charles Wesley, his mom, John Wesley's mom, there's a story about her where she had kids, lots of them, and she could hardly get away. And so the story goes that she would just put her apron above her head and she would read her Bible underneath there and she'd tell her kids, if my apron's above my head, leave me alone, I need some time, you know? Where can we find solitude in the day-to-day? Where can we find and value the solitude that we have? It might be as simple as, as getting creative, which is you have a husband or a wife or you have friends, say, hey, let's go somewhere together for 45 minutes, we'll buy the kids Chick-fil-A and I'll watch your kids for five minutes or 10 minutes or 30 minutes and then you watch mine and I'll just take a walk. We have 50 acres at CBC. Come, hang out. We got a playground. I'll watch the kids. Come on and let's get some solitude in our lives, right? The idea that we have to value it and we get creative about how we implement it because it's in those moments, it's in those moments where God forms us so we're not formed by the world around us, where he shapes us so we're not shaped by the public places. Finally, we, we have longer rhythms we can get into, but one of the things we want to do at CBC is, uh, is help kind of us process through these things and provide places for solitude. So on January 30th, we're going to have a silent retreat here at CBC for four hours. It's going to be great or super awkward. It's going to be one of the two for everybody that comes, but it's a practice we want to engage in. We'll have signups go live next week because we want to find in those moments of solitude and silence that God is shaping who we're becoming because it's a practice that Jesus practiced and one that we need in a world that's surrounding us. And finally, uh, where this lands is what happens if we all do this together. Why is solitude important? Not just for you, but for, for we, for us as a church. I think back to w- just what happened this week in this country. Really hard. Really hard to watch things you've looked up to that you, you always thought, this is never going to happen in my country. This is never going to happen here. We are America. We are a democracy. We're never going to look like a third world country, X, Y, and Z. And regardless of what aisle you fall down, it was a rough day on Wednesday for the U.S. of A. It was. And what this does is essentially as we continue to practice solitude in our lives, what we can do then is even in the busyness of the world, we still rest in the presence of God in public places. We can take that solitude in the worst of places and say, I can rest in a God who defines me, not others' expectations of me or my experiences. We can go to the world and say, I know it seems chaotic, but look at a constant God because he's forming me in the private places. We can go to the world and say, yeah, it seems crazy, but no matter who's elected, God is still on the throne. We have the capacity in those moments because we've been formed in the private places of solitude to inform the public people that God is better and the ways of Jesus are worth it. Not just for one day, but for two days. It's a practice we engage in so we can remind the people of the goodness of God. So might we be a people of solitude? Might we be a people that are formed by God in private places so that we're, we're not shaped by the public places. Let me pray for us.